Go and open your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Beginning a new series in 2 Timothy. We finished 1 Timothy last year, and 2 Timothy um, is also includes our fifth verse. Uh, if you want to remember what the fifth verse is, it's basically it's a 222. Two, two. It's 2 Timothy 2, verse 2. Commit thou the faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. And we already preached on that um, specific verse. We'll be preaching again in the future. But I'm about being committed to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. And our voice of our and verse of virtue is part of that. Is teaching the boys and the girls different traits, different uh, life skills so they could uh, maybe gain an interest in maybe some of these. Maybe they'll use it for a career. Maybe they'll use it in, the, in their home. And, um, but today's message is actually about the faithfulness of godly woman. And so the, throughout the, the book, you see about Paul challenging Timothy, commit thou to faithful men. But there weren't any faithful men until there were first the faithfulness of a couple of godly women that we'll see in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Because Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord, I thank God whom I serve from my forefathers with pure conscience, that without ceasing I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day. Greatly desire to see thee, being mindful of thy tears, that I may be filled with joy when I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice. And I am persuaded that in thee also. Dear Holy Father, we just ask the Lord that you be with the declaration of your word this morning. Christ's name we ask. Amen. The context with which um, Paul is writing this epistle is in the middle of a Roman persecution which was escalating under Nero, the hostility of those in the Ephesian church um, developed as well. Some who end up, it appears, kind of reading in between the lines, but reading what Paul is writing in Timothy, it appears that Timothy was having some challenges with those in the church that were challenging his leadership because of his youth, for um, being someone that they considered to be young. He wasn't a novice, but in their eyes, he was still considered um, young, and so they gave him some difficulties, and that's where he tells Timothy, let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example, to be an example of charity, and peace and thanks. So he tells him, you know, lead by your example. He didn't say, you know, be controlling or um, or just try to fight back. He tells him more, just be an example of the believers in all period. And, and, but there were also uh, infiltration of false teachers who had smooth words that were also overwhelming Timothy, and Timothy was no doubt weaker by the time the second um, epistle was written to him. He was maybe being 
going a little less effective. Maybe that initial passion drive he had when he first went there, maybe he was joining a little bit. Um, heresy was spreading in some of the um, different local churches, and persecution um, in some parts had been destructive. In other parts, it actually helped flourish the gospel. As you see, the church in Jerusalem, when persecution came, they were scattered, and they went everywhere teaching and preaching Christ. But it doesn't mean it was never discouraging to go through those types of persecution. It's just a few years earlier than 2 Timothy was written, around AD 64, Nero had ordered the torching of his own capital city of Rome, which burned for six days and six nights. And this wasn't just the wooden shacks of the poor, but even the stone places of the mansions of those that were considered wealthy, um, and many of the massive public um, buildings, and even some of their pagan temples um, ended up being um, burned to the ground. The Roman historian Tacitus, uh, which was from the first few centuries, he wrote this, but all human efforts, all the lavish gifts of the emperor, and the propitiations of the gods did not banish the sinister belief that the conflagration was the result of an order by Nero. And so the people were starting to see that Nero caused it. They started to turn up. And so Nero, trying to save face, ends up blaming the Christians for the fires. And, and then he says, Tacitus says this, consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most tortures on the class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. So these are the kinds of things that were just kind of going on in Rome, around um, the region, further along as well, even up to um, Ephesus. Timothy and Paul had first visited Ephesus on Paul's third missionary trip journey in Acts 19. Um, the whole third journey was spent mostly in Ephesus. Paul's time there was one of the longest days he made anywhere. After three months' ministry in the synagogue, he set shop in a hall where he taught daily for two whole years. In Acts 19, verse 8, it says, And he went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. But when divers were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of that way before the multitude, he departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. And this continued by the space of two years, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. And Ephesus was considered a major center, one of the largest cities in the ancient world. And through Paul's ministry there, the entire Roman province of Asia was exposed to the gospel. But in Ephesus itself, so many people became Christians that the local uh, idol-making industry started to crumble. You see that in Acts 19, verse 23 to 27, that the idol-makers were terrified because these Christians, they would go and they'd go burn their idols and, and discourage worship of idols and encourage the worship of the Creator um, God. And now Ephesus was the place that before that was just very painted. 
After this, all this, while Paul was in prison in Rome, he wrote a letter to the Ephesian Christians, which was preserved in the Bible as the book of Ephesians. And this time, Ephesus received the ministry of Timothy, um, a godly young man who got parts of the Bible sent to him in the mail as he was personally coached by the Apostle Paul. Now we'll begin talking about how Timothy initially um, was exposed um, to Paul's ministry. Go ahead and do it Acts 16. So we're going backwards now. Um, Acts 19, Timothy is chosen to go with Paul on some missions trips. But before that, you see in Acts 16, verse 1, um, Then came he to Derby and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timotheus, the son of a certain woman, which was a Jewish and believed, but his father was a Greek, which was well reported of by the brethren that were in Lystra and Iconium. Him would Paul have to go forth with him, and took and circumcised him because of the Jews which were in those quarters, for they knew all that his father was a Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered them the decrees to, for the keep that were ordained of the apostles and elders which were in Jerusalem. And so were the churches established in the faith and increased in number daily. And so Paul goes, and there's Timothy, a disciple of that and learned. Um, from his mother, from his grandmother, and, and then eventually from Paul, and then he would go with Paul on some mission journeys. And so looking back at his childhood, um, Lois and Eunice, he's speaking of in First Timothy, or Second Timothy 1 Timothy 1.5, says, I, When I call to remembrance the unfaith faith that is in thee, which dwell first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in thee also. And when he tells them an unfeigned faith, he's saying, you know what, in you, your faith is genuine. It's legitimate. This is, you know, you're, you're sincere, uh, and this isn't a hypocritical faith. This is something you truly believe. And he says, it began with your grandma and your mother, the influence of these godly women. Now, both Lois and Eunice are Greek names, not Hebrew in origin, but they were Jewish themselves. Eunice ends up marrying a Greek, and together they had a son who was given the Hebrew name Timothy, which means one who honors God. And so, some would think, why would she marry a pagan Greek? You know, we're not told the history of that, um, but. In all likelihood, what's going, what's going on is that the Jews were dispersed among multitudes of nations, but there were very few in Lystra. This is where Timothy um, grows up at, at but Eunice and, uh, and Lois, um, they're there, and there's basically no other Jewish people there. There's not a synagogue in Lystra. And so, having no one else to be equally yoked with, ends up marrying a great as possible. Maybe it was before she really even was a person of faith um, that they had um, been married as possible. But we do see that early on, he, she does give a name to Timothy, which means one who honors God. One, one source I read 
um, said this, at most then, two or three Jewish families lived in that human city. So this wasn't a place that was Jewish friendly. This wasn't friendly to the Jewish faith. But it, was, it was completely pagan area. Uh, perhaps Lois and Eunice were the only worshippers of Jehovah then. Uh, for we do not even meet, read of a meeting place for prayer. Um, as we do by the riverside, and Paul went another lady, Lydia. There wasn't a church there yet, but there was a place where the believers would gather um, for prayer in the river. And on this book also, there was no synagogue in Lystra where Timothy could have heard every Sabbath and twice in a week. Moses and the prophets read and derived other religious knowledge. There was so far as we can see, neither religious companionship nor means of instruction of any kind, nor religious example, not even from his father, but all around quite the contrary. But there was one influence for highest good, constant, unvarying, and most powerful. It was that of a mother in Israel, so to speak. But instead of being in Israel, being in Lystra, a godly mother and a godly grandmother. These women played a vital role in Timothy's conversion and spiritual development. He was grounded in the faith before Paul even began to mentor them. And it's possible that they were followers, they were followers of Jehovah, and then when Paul came on his missionary journey, they had a clearer understanding that Jesus was the Son of God and believed on him, and then Timothy um, had believed. And Paul calls him son. This isn't his physical, biological son, but he's calling him my own son in the faith. Grace and mercy, peace from God our Father, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so that Paul mentored Timothy, and he had the joy of remembering Timothy's unfeigned faith, genuine, sincere, felt hypocrisy, as I mentioned. But it began with godly women who were faithful. Where the husband wasn't spiritually present. We see these godly women were faithful to their family. Faithful to their family. Proverbs 14:1 says, Every wise woman buildeth her house, but the foolish plucketh it down with her hands. Wise woman. Beginning wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And so in this wise woman, there's going to be a godly woman that builds her house. It's not talking about doing the framing of a building. This is talking about spiritually and just in generally building her home. Building up her children. Building up her husband. But that a foolish one plucks it down with her hands. And you know, you see that with the, the, the words of a woman. Well, it could bring down a home. It could bring down the spirit, the, the tone of a home. But these two women here, they were a wise, they were wise women that built up their home. They found out ways to spiritually bring up, to nurture um, Timothy. We see other faithful um, women throughout the scriptures that they are faithful to pray. We see Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1 prayed when she struggled and when she was on top of the world. 
that she was a bearer. She was also in a relationship where her husband had two wives. That's not ever anything that really the Bible ever condones. The Bible just recording what happens is Jesus said, you know, God created one Adam and he created Eve. Two shall be one flesh, not three. But this is what we see that happened in the culture um, in that day. And so Hannah has this sister wife, so to speak, and she is, ends up being able to have children, but not herself. And a lot of times a woman would see their value in being able to give their husbands children. And so she was she got bitter. She got she got discouraged. But even when she was discouraged, she prayed. For Samuel 1:10 says, and she was in bitterness of soul, and prayed unto the Lord, and wept sore. And she bowed about and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid, and remember me, and not forget thine handmaid, but will give unto thine handmaid a man child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of my life. So I can all be committed. I'll raise him up in the ways of the Lord, and then we see that she gives him over unto the temple to, um, to be raised um, in, the, in the temple, being raised to do the service of the Lord. And even when, after she ends up having a child, when God opens her barren womb, she's on top of the world, she doesn't forget God, but she continues to pray. First Samuel 2, 1 says, And he had prayed and said, My heart rejoiceth in the Lord. My horn is assaulted in the Lord. My mouth is enlarged over my enemies, because I rejoice in thy salvation. And so we see a godly woman that when she was destitute, when she, she was a bitterness of soul, she prayed. But then when things were going well, she prayed. She rejoiced and worshipped the Lord and gave thanks. Godly women are going to be faithful to pray. Pray for their families. Uh, pray for people they could reach. Pray to um, pray unto the Lord. Godly women are committed to the scriptures. Is God see sign? Humans with emotions. And typically, women will often be more emotional than a lot of men. Not always the case, but many of the times that's the case. But even with how things feel emotionally, a godly woman is going to be committed to the scriptures. They're going to be committed to what the Word of God teaches. You know, it can be easy, as you know, if someone sees a friend or a child end up going into a sinful lifestyle, and it can be easy to get soft on that and not be committed to the scriptures. But a godly woman, she's going to be compassionate, but she's going to be committed to the scriptures. 2 Timothy 3.14. This is what, again, Paul talking to Timothy. It says, but continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of. Where did he learn the things? From Eunice and Lois, his grandmother and his mother. That's what he learned. But how did he learn it? What was he learning? He says, And knowing of whom thou hast learned it, and that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, 
which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And as there we see, the more proof that Eunice and Lois raise him on the scriptures. That they instructed him in the word of God. Again, that was a pagan. Fallen after the Greek pagan gods. But the woman, they followed after the Lord and taught them the scriptures. Gave them the scriptures. Godly women are going to be committed to the scriptures. Godly women have influence. Even when the man is out of the picture spiritually, a godly woman can have a huge impact on her children and on her husband. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. There's been people that have been godly parents that have had children go astray. 
Uh, there's, you see with the prodigal um, son, how he went away, wasted much of his life. Thankfully, he did come back. And there is a key here. It says, when he is old, he shall not depart from it. Sometimes people go on and wander in the wilderness for a while. But you look at God, who is the perfect Father, our Heavenly Father, and even He has children that go wayward. Now, it's not any uh, um, condemnation on God's part. There, it wasn't anything that God had done wrong. So sometimes there are those faithful parents that have been faithful, have several children, and one of them maybe doesn't turn out um, well or serve the Lord. And so don't be discouraged if that's the case um, in your own life. Okay? It doesn't mean um, you necessarily did things wrong, and maybe you know that, maybe there were things you would have done differently. But generally speaking, we see this as a true, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And this could be in any particular way, okay? Okay, a home that's filled with drugs, and they train their children in that kind of lifestyle, their children are more than likely going to continue in that drug lifestyle. That's the way they're going to continue to go. A family that's bitter, that's always angry, always at it against each other, when they have children, they're probably going to end up repeating that cycle. Now, we can't use that as an excuse for ourselves. You know what? Let's break that curse. You know what? Uh, the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. We don't need to repeat those patterns. But generally speaking, you see those patterns go through, for good or for bad. You train up a child in some bad ways, they're probably not going to depart from it. Except Christ get a hold of them. And if generally speaking, you raise them in the ways of God, you raise them in the scriptures, generally, they're not going to depart from it. Now, this last Wednesday, Todd message, uh, we know it's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and then also Daniel. Um, now, Daniel was the writing, but it wasn't the name of the other people. But I talked about how Daniel and these men had an excellent spirit about them, and how God uh, gave them favor in the eyes of a pagan empire. That they were taken um, as teenagers, um, they were taken captive, and, and they were forced to be slaves. Go ahead and turn to Daniel 12. I also talked a little bit about it in this breakfast. Because we'll talk about it a little bit here as well. Daniel chapter 1. Uh, so the first few verses, they're captured, they're taken away. And then in verse 4, it says, Children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored, and skillful in all wisdom, and cunning in knowledge, and understanding science, and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the learning in the tongue of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat, and of the wine which he drank, so nursing them three years, and at the end thereof they might stand before the king. Now among these were the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names, for he gave unto Daniel the name of Belteshazzar, and to Hananiah of Shadrach, and to Mishael of Mesach, and to Azariah of Abednego. 
But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. So about his teenagers, likely, they are kidnapped, taken as captive, forced to be slaves by Nebuchadnezzar during the first siege of Jerusalem in 606 BC, and then they're forced to attend this school in Babylonia, where they're going to be being brainwashed, being corrupted here for three years. Three years. Now we see the beginning of the insult is in their name change. Daniel means God is judge. And it's the parents that are naming the children. So the unsung heroes of this account is the parents. Most like a godly father and a godly mother. What's going to give their life? Okay? His name was Daniel. God is judge. His name changed to Belshazzar, which means worshiper of Baal. That's how his brainwashing started. Now, we are going to change your names. Now, you are not a worshiper of Jehovah. You are a worshiper of Pagan, God, a demon is what his name is changed to. Okay, a worshiper of a demon. And then I admit the Lord is gracious. And then Shadrach means illumined by the sun god. So, before it was Jehovah, he's gracious. To then be in chains, illumined by the sun god. Mishael meant who is like God. To Meshach, to who is like Ishtar. The goddess of fertility. Pagan gods. Azariah means the Lord. The Lord Jehovah is my help. To Abednego, the slave of Nebu. The god of wisdom and education. So their names are changed. They're trying to change their foundation. Now maybe they understood of these boys some positive things. That they had no blemish. They were well favored. They were skillful in wisdom. These were wise young men. Cunning in knowledge. Understanding science. These were smart people. These were raised by godly parents. Parents that feared the Lord. That's really between the lines a little bit, but we see with the names they were given, we see how they were how they were raised and being raised to be sharp here, that they were most likely raised by godly parents. Such as having the ability of them to stand in the king's palace, and who they might teach to learn in the time of Chaldeans. That these were young boys, that they'd be able to stand before the king and not be intimidated. They at first they they like it, so right? Like, okay, these are men. They're going to be able to socialize. They're going to be able to uh, do some pretty mighty things in front of people. There's not the fear of man in their eyes. So they look at these as good slaves that they'll be able to train up. Part of you know, like giving children the opportunity to solemnly to sing specials and stuff. It said help getting them comfortable when they're young. So as they get older, you'll be able to be in front of um, people and not be as timid. We see uh, um, that they're able to learn other languages as well. And we see their conditions are trying. What they believe is trying. 
that they would not eat any food that was considered unclean or drink any wine. And then that's what they're given. They're given unclean Gentile food and offered wine. And Daniel respectfully asks, he says, hey, you know what, can you please, can we have this spirit? You know what, this isn't do well for me. You know, can you give us this other kind of food and not drink of the wine and, and just prove us and see if we're healthy? And he finally convinced them, and then they were able to um, eat what they felt was right in the eyes of God um, in, in that time. The convictions are tried. We see um, that um, the men um, tattled on them, not that they even needed to be tattled on, as it was obvious, but um, the men, when they said, we're going to worship this golden image, they said, these, O king, men, these men, O king, have not regarded thee. They serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. And so they were told that it's a music play. Worship this statue. Ninety feet tall statue made of gold worth billions of dollars in today's funds. According to one thing I read, it was worth about a little over $2 billion. And they're, told, they're, they're confronted. These boys, they've already been going through this school for three years. This attempt of brainwashing them. Daniel 3 and verse 16. Remember they were able to stand in the king's palace? Now the king is against them, and they say this, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. You know, we are not loose and sleep. We are not sweating about what are we going to say. We're not trying to make an outline of, okay, what are we going to say to the king? We're going to be killed. And they're going to be thrown in, they were going to be thrown in the fire the same hour. This wasn't, they weren't going to get a trial. They weren't going to be able to plead their case. It was the same hour you're going to be thrown in a fiery furnace. If we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. I'll make the king so happy of them being able to stand in the king's palace now. But these are men that were trained by their parents, their father, their mother, to love the Lord, and they had such conviction that after three years of being trying to be brainwashed to worship this golden image, to worship this king, you see, we're not careful to answer the this. When everyone else bowed down in the music, they stood up. Everybody's going to see that. There's no secret faith here. This isn't like, hey, we're secretly going to be believers. We're going to continue to call Jehovah, but let's not make a scene. Now, they didn't try to go make a scene. <clears throat> they were just like, hey, kind of the worst of the image. We're not going to. <clears throat> Look at the children of Israel at a different time, saying when they made the golden calf. They were at ease. And Moses went up, did it, and God would give them the Ten Commandments. <clears throat> but their life was pretty much at ease. Not in his slaves anymore. And yet they came out and took an idol, made a golden calf, and basically said, This is the Lord our God. No conviction at all. These three men 
taken, stolen, kidnapped from their parents, going to school in Babylon for three years, told to worship this image, and they still say, we're not going to. And he said, he said we believe that God is going to deliver us. God's going to deliver us out of your hand. That's pretty bold to say, you know, the fiery furnace is over there somewhere, and it's getting turned on, it's getting hot, and he says, you're going to turn it hotter, you know what, these men are being defiant, you right, know, God's going to deliver us. What's the likelihood of that happening? Fiery furnace just right over there, you're defying the king, not by having a bad spirit, just for following the Lord. What are the odds of being delivered from that? When we speak in this, there's no possibility. But again, all things with God, all things are possible. But so they believe by faith God would deliver them. But they even said this. But if not, and you understand our God sovereign, we believe that God's going to deliver us. But even if he does not deliver us, even if not, be it known unto thee, O King, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Men of conviction, God is from their parents. So, woman, as we see with Timothy, don't think it's a grandma. You might think, I don't have any little children in my home anymore. I'm a grandmother. You have influence. Be committed to the scriptures. Be committed to prayer. Maybe your own children aren't following and serving the Lord. Maybe not as close as you would like to see them. But the influence you could have is the godly grandmother can go far. See the parents and maybe the grandparents of these three men or these four men, counting Daniel, that they, they, they were faithful to raise children See, they're thrown in a fiery furnace. What happens? And Buchanan says, you know, I see a fourth man walk. Like unto the Son of God. Christophany, a theophany, or a pre-incarnation of Christ. A wicked ruler, a wicked king, recognized that there was one that would be the Son of God walking in the midst not burn at all. It was like they were just warming up by a campfire. God delivered him. God honored him for their faith. But again, that began with the parents. Now, if parents can't transfer their faith. You know, we're not born again by the will of flesh or the will of man in that we can't will our children and force them to be saved. They must be born again by the Spirit of God. They must personally have a faith. We see that John the Baptist told the Pharisees, uh, called them vipers and children of the devil, and they, they bragged about, we're of the seed of Abraham. We're of the seed of Moses. You know what? We, we are the children of God. He's like, no, you know what? Just because you know what? Your fathers, your forefathers, they were saved, it doesn't make you saved. Someone's not saved because of who their parents are. Just because someone's born in a Christian home does not mean they're saved. Now there's more possibilities, possibly as far as sharing the gospel in the home that may lead to that, but we are not saved because of our parents as far as because our parents are Christians, we're saved. 
Some will say, I've always been a Christian ever since I was born. Well, you may be raised in a Christian home, but you are not by default a Christian just because you're born into a Christian home. You must be born again. You must receive Christ by faith personally. And we see these men here have faith in their Jehovah God. It was personal. They had the faith to stand against um, the king here. Um, where those that maybe just had a parent's faith, but it wasn't their own, they would have just bowed down. You saw all these children of Israel bowing down. They either didn't have their parents' faith or their parents weren't really involved in truly teaching them and admonishing them in the ways of the Lord. We see with Daniel later on that Daniel had an excellent spirit, that he was preferred before all the others because he had an excellent spirit with him. God lifted him up. The other men got jealous. And they're like, we can't find any fault with his business dealings. He's ethical. He does things right. The only way we're going to find fault with him is if we can find fault between him and his God. And so they came up with a plan that for 30 days that they sent to the king that this is when they were stolen by another group. You know, by Medes and Persia, the modern Iran um, region is where that was. And, and so they're taken captive by another empire. And so Daniel ends up being taken and again going up. But then now they say, don't pray to anybody except for to the king. Daniel, when he heard that it was written, Daniel 6.10, it says, Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house, and his windows being opened in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did it four times. Man of conviction. He wasn't doing this out of a spirit of rebellion. It says, as he did it four times. This was already his practice. He would pray three times a day, open the window, praying toward Jerusalem, praying to his heavenly father, and then they're like, we got him! He's defying the king. See, they weren't really fighting in the communication against him and his God, because he kept falling after his God. But then we see he's thrown in the lion's den. And the king didn't want to do that. The king didn't want to throw him in, but the men were like, no, you sealed it. You sealed it with your ring. That if anyone defied this law, they would be thrown in the lions. And these were hungry lions. These were lions that were just fed. These were lions that were being starved, so they would be hungry. Daniel stood upon principle, stood upon his faith. Daniel was raised by someone. The influence of a godly <coughs> These four men will follow God no matter what the cost was. We see God deliver them. Now we see other times people stood faithful. You know, you read Hebrews 11, talks about many having victory. But you see others were sung asunder. You see people that were tortured, people that were killed. But evidently, as far as eternity is, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 
At the time, it would go to where paradise would be, the heart of the earth, and then at the resurrection of Christ, it would then go and be forever with the Lord. Where's godly parents, godly grandparents, realize you make an impact, you have influence. You see Daniel was spared from the lions, and then the, the, they were thrown, those that wanted him in there, them, their wives, and their children were thrown. Godly influence goes a long way. But you know a godly influence can go away in just one generation. Just one generation, it could be lost. I was visiting with a lady yesterday, Following the visit with her, checking on her um, in a nursing home type environment. And she was talking about some of the things I talked about at the men's breakfast. And she was in the lunch room, and then she ends up sit, um, saying, um, Oh, you know, maybe we shouldn't talk about this Bible stuff in here. Maybe we should go outside on the porch because some people might not like it. She's been conditioned so much to hide her faith. And that's apart from her husband, who's not a believer, but been conditioned to think, hey, you know, hide it. Let's go out on the floor. So I don't know. They're fine. You know, if they had an issue, they would probably let us know. And then the lady, right? Oh, yeah, no, go on. And so, but we've been conditioned to think that in society. You know, in the school, close schools, oh, don't talk about God. Don't talk about the Bible. And we don't just give up. We're told in politics, don't let the Bible influence um, your decisions, your faith. So, like, why not? The atheists allow their worldview to shape their beliefs and their how they run. There's no need to be afraid to live unto the Lord and to live that out. But all it takes is one generation, and that godly influence could be lost. In the church at Ephesus, the church at Ephesus is where Timothy passed. Paul ministered there. There is historical testimony from true church history that the Apostle John made Ephesus as his second church or his headquarters for a number of years. According to two early writers, it was from Ephesus that the Gospel of John and the letters of 1, 2, and 3 John were written. Talk about a place that got the best of the best. You know, you may have those that are considered your favorite preachers. And just think you have a conference where your three favorite preachers were preaching at. That you probably want to go and hear, hear um, the people in that conference. Here they had the Apostle Paul, the Apostle John. They had Timothy ministering and serving in the church in Ephesus at different times. A place that got the best of the best. Multiple godly pastors poured into the life of these Christians in Ephesus. If we can think of one church in the first century that should have stayed strong and healthy, Ephesus would be the one, wouldn't it? Go to Revelations chapter 2. You think that Revelations would be the one, but maybe not. Ephesus comes up one more time in the Bible. Revelation chapter 2 in verse 1 says, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus, right, these things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, 
and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. So here we see Jesus complimenting the church, saying some things that they got right. They were faithful in many of their works. They, they hated false teachers. You know, they, they finally rooted it out, called well, Timothy, you need to deal with this, and they dealt with it. And, um, and those that would say they were apostles, but they were not. But then he says, nevertheless, this Jesus speaking, I have someone against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent and do the first works. Or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of the place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that have an ear, let him hear that what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh, who I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. We read elsewhere, we would see that overcometh, they that have faith. And so what we see here is the church. They have lost their first love. That passion for the Lord. They maybe cared about doctrine, okay, they cared about some things, but they lost that mind. It was more of a their intellect of their mind, you know, we got to have these things right. But their heart was no longer in it. Just in one generation, three great preachers, John, Timothy, Paul, no longer was their heart really in it. And as far as I'm aware of, there's no, this church of Ephesus is no longer here. That candlestick was removed. May we not cave up our influences, fathers, mothers, grandparents. Let them see that our passion for the Lord. Let them see that we're serious. This is an unfeigned faith, a faith without hypocrisy. A faith that has passion in it. A faith that has a genuine love for God. And then may we have children, grandchildren like Daniel, Azariah, Michelle, him and I. And they knew their roots. Society isn't getting better out here. But your children, grandchildren, they follow the Lord. They can withstand it. Not in their own power, in their own flesh, but in having their faith in their God and trusting in Him, you could have influence. May that influence spread. Let's go and have a time of invitation. It's a song place. And just ask God. It's about And ask God. Encourage you to help me more to be people of faith, to live my faith, to be passionate. To not lose that love for God. And people will see it as true. And they're not seeing it as simply following some kind of rules or regulations, but as a heart for God that leads them to have convictions. You know, with the unclean needs in the Old Testament here, I think it was so much they were like, we just gotta not eat this meat, we gotta follow this rule. I think it was more of a heart of, 
No, we want to please you, Lord. And so we're willing to follow this. We don't want to defile ourselves. They're not looking at it as, oh, this is such a, a rule that we disagree with. It's more like, hey, I want to please God. That's where the Bible says, you know, there's two great commandments. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, strength. Love the, thy neighbor as thyself. On these two hang all the law of the prophets. You love the Lord? You're going to follow the Lord's commands. You're going to follow what Jesus has told us to do and teaching the gospel to all nations. And living for him. You're not looking at it as, oh, I have these rules to follow. Or you're looking at it as, you know, I want to please the Lord. I want to honor the Lord. You know, when you love your neighbor, you don't really need to be told not to steal. You need to be told that because the carnal man is hardened against God and human nature with the sinful nature ends up doing that. But as for the Bible says, the law isn't given for the righteous, but for sinners. The law shows us that we fall short. We're condemned already. When you know you love your neighbor, you're not going to steal from them. You're not going to covet their wife. When we love the Lord, you're not going to be committing idolatry. And then follow the Dear Heavenly Father, help us, Lord, to be Christians that really wouldn't be considered Christians by the world, where the world would see that we are different. Not because we're terrible people to be around, but because we have a love for you. May our faith not be a secret. May people see our faith. We you give us, Lord, the courage to be able to stand when needed. So we see with those three young men being willing to stand instead of the vow. When the rest of the world bows. And Lord, help us to not believe that our godly influence as we're following you is not in vain. Help us to realize it's not in vain. Sometimes children or grandchildren, they may go away for a while, but may we be consistent in our faith and following you. And Lord, we pray, Lord, that any that are prodigals in the morning, that they would come back. That they would follow you, that they would come back and want to do that which is right. Not to just do what's right, but just to follow you. Please do. In Jesus' name, amen. Next week, Sunday at 10 o'clock, we'll be teaching on how to study the Bible. And so come on out here, and I will give you a homework assignment, too. I'll be if that doesn't scare you away. <laughs> <laughs>